Area 51 and a Half podcast. I am your host, John Allen. With me, as always, is my co-host... Snyderman501, Nick Snyder. Nick, where can they reach us? They can reach us on Twitter at the area 51 h as well as the same on Instagram and Twitch. And as you know, folks, we talk about all things science fiction, horror, fantasy, and pop culture on our podcast. But first, we have to begin with some sad news for Canadians. Candy Palmatier. Now, she was a lawyer in her career, but she became a comedian. She was the host of The Social on CTV. Sadly, she passed away at the age of 53 yesterday. The cause of death is still a little unknown. We do know that she was ill and she was in and out of the hospital. It doesn't indicate that it was COVID-19 or anything related to that. But it is a tremendous loss as she was an Indigenous voice in broadcasting here in Canada and uh, was an advocate for uh, First Nations rights. 53, that is way too young. Way too young. And you know what? It's going to leave a a hole with her co-hosts on the social, and my heart just goes out to them. That's really sad. It's it's always sad when we have to start with the the death of someone in pop culture who has passed away, because it really doesn't give us a great way to segue into the roundup, but that's where we're going to have to go. Yep, that is where we're going. Okay, so this week's pop culture roundup. We're going to talk about three main points. Number one, if you don't know who Lorne Michaels is... You don't know comedy. Lauren Michaels is the progenitor, producer, and pretty much the brain behind Saturday Night Live and a lot of the films that have spun off from it. Lauren Michaels has mentioned that he is going to possibly retire soon. And that's a big deal. Not surprising. I mean, he's well, got to be up there. Oh, he's been doing it for, what, 50, nearly 50 years I think as Saturday well? Night Live started in the 1970s. Yeah, it did. It did, with that original cast with Chevy Chase and Bill Murray and all that. Yeah, and he did Kids in the Hall as well. Yeah, he did. Again, great Canadian artist, great Canadian producer. Be interested to see what, what Saturday Night Live is without Lauren Michaels. Now, speaking of retiring, Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, or now formerly the CEO of Disney, has stepped down from Disney. That is a huge thing, because Bob Iger has presided over Disney over the past quite some time. He has been behind the purchase of Marvel. He has been behind a lot of the films from the MCU, from the Star Wars universe, and generally Pixar and everything over the past decade or, or more. And he's leaving. And it'll be really intriguing to see the direction that Disney goes from here. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing that's happening because there's a lot of people that are not happy already with the new CEO, Bob Chappick. Really? Oh, my friend Mark is a huge Disney, as I like to to call them. And don't come for me, I'm just having some fun. Is a huge Disney cultist. And people that just love Disney are really PO'd with a lot of the... The decisions that Bob Chappick has made, particularly the way it affects the amusement parks. Yeah. Like, they've they've gotten rid of the Magical Express. I heard they really upped the ticket prices during the pandemic. Yeah, and rumor has it, I can't confirm this, rumor has it, unceremoniously, just let go of a lot of Imagineers. You know, and that's the thing, like, there's a couple of them I follow on TikTok, and some of them were fired and then rehired. So, you know... That's a thing. Yeah, I think that what they're seeing right now is that mistakes are made because fans are not happy. I don't think the board of directors is happy. Again, we don't have confirmation from this. It's all rumor. It's all speculation. But this could be a a dark period for Disney. Well, yeah, it sounds like Bob Chappick might not survive. Now, speaking of dark chapters, John, what do you got for us next? Oh, The Matrix has dropped. 
the latest in the Matrix series starring Keanu Reeves. Now, I want to just mention a bit about Keanu Reeves. I mean, this guy, this actor, what a great actor we, we've got in Keanu Reeves. And the fact that he has been in three really great franchises. He's got the Bill and Ted's uh, franchise. He's got John Wick oh franchise. Oh, my God, John Wick. And he's got the Matrix franchise. But early reviews of the Matrix. Not great. Yeah. Not great at all. I'll be honest with you. I I expected that Matrix two and three weren't greatly received either. Now I know a little bit of history of this movie. I know Warner Brothers was going to go through with it anyway, whether whether either of the Wachowskis were involved or not. I know Lana Wachowski used this as a way to kind of process her parents' death, and I respect that a lot. I respect doing that kind of thing with your art. It's unfortunate that it hasn't been received as well as the original. But again, not that surprising. Well, there's that wrestling term that used to be used. You went to the well once too often. Right. Yeah, and that's the thing. But And that's that's a weird thing because you think movies like the Marvel movies would have done that, but they seem to continue on making tons and tons and tons of money. Now, we can't comment on it because we have not seen it. The way things are going around here with Omicron, we don't yeah, know it, when we're going to be able to see it. It might be again. a case of we have to wait for home streaming to see it, but it is what it is. Just from all the reviews I'm seeing, it's uh, people are not engaged with it. No, no. And again, understandable, but unfortunate. And now, it is unfortunate because the, the Matrix was something very fresh, very new at the time. Yeah. And it helped sort of elevate storytelling. It moved storytelling into a different way. The way that they were doing the special effects, uh, it, it really put itself into the pop culture iconography. Just the moves that they were doing, like... Remember the first Matrix when Neo does the, the back the, the, the bend and, okay. and moves past the bullets. So let, let's talk about that for a second. So to our listeners, it came as a bit of a shock to John when we were discussing this, and he found out that I'm not a big fan of the, the original Matrix. But the thing is with it, though, is even though I don't like it, I can still understand that it is an important film, not just in pop culture, but it propelled so much forward in visual effects and storytelling in general. So it's, it's, I kind of would, again, I still need to see this new film and I will see it because I still want to remain objective. I might like it, but I want to see if they've done anything in this movie that is new, that is innovative, because that's what I really remember the original Matrix for is the innovation. Yeah. And the storytelling in the very first movie was really fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of storytelling, speaking of moving the franchise forward, speaking of new and innovative, we are talking about Spider-Man No Way Home this week. Yeah, we are. And oh my God, I loved it. I really, really enjoyed myself watching this film. What about you, John? It was really enjoyable to watch. I had a great time watching it. I mean, Really, we knew we were probably going to have fun going into this because Jamie Foxx gets to have a better run as Electro. Right. Thomas Hayden Church comes back voicing the Sandman. Reese Ifans is back as 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 Doctor Connors. Dr. Connors the Lizard. Alfred Molina as Doctor Octopus and Dafoe as the Green Goblin. All of them are back. Look, folks, this is not really a spoiler. If you didn't expect this to happen, shame on you for, for not thinking of it. We get Tobey Maguire and we get Andrew Garfield as their iterations of Spider-Man all teaming up to fight these villains. 
Oh my God, what a great and exciting time to watch a movie. The thing I really, really loved about this film was that it encapsulated good storytelling with good performances and fan service. It shows that it can all be done at once. Whoever is watching Star Wars needs to watch this film because this is how it's done. But it's so brilliant, and I loved Tom Holland. I felt Tom Holland hit a whole new level with his performance in this film. Oh, absolutely, because here's the thing that, that comes out of this, and this is one of the things that, that makes... We were talking about this earlier. This makes Spider-Man such an interesting superhero because he's young. Yeah. He's he's basically a, a kid when he gets his spider powers. He's still in high school. He moves on to college. He gets the job at the Daily Bugle. So we see this growth. But in each of the iterations of Spider-Man, and it's integral to this movie. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Okay, you have been warned. There is a spoiler alert. It is integral to the Spider-Man mythos. No matter if it's the Tobey Maguire ones, no matter if it's the Andrew Garfield, no matter if it's Tom Holland. There has to be a tragedy that Peter Parker feels it is either his fault that it happened or he could have prevented it from happening and did not which allows him to have that growth, that loss of innocence, that maturation from boy to man. And in this case... It was Aunt May. And, and it is tragic and heart-wrenching. Oh, it hurt. It was a gut punch. And when it happens, you know, she like without getting too far into it, she gets back up on her feet, and you think she's fine, and then she's not. And it hurt. And as the audience member, and watching... Tom Holland go through all this because it's not just a case of like when Uncle Ben dies, he has that moment with him. There is chaos happening all around. So he's trying to process what's just happened as well as process what else is happening. And we get that great quote with great power comes great responsibility, which is at the heart of Spider-Man. Yeah, it is. It is. And now, going on with the whole... If we're to look at the whole tragedy thing, if you look at the comic books for Spider-Man, I feel like the writers at times just go, okay, how can we torture Spider-Man this moment? Because if you look at some of the stuff that he's been through in the comic books, Andrew Garfield also, his Spider-Man also went through the death of Gwen Stacy. That happened in the comic books. And even going to uh, one, I think it's one day more, where Spider-Man goes to Mephisto and says, I want everybody to forget that I'm Spider-Man, and that's going to include MJ. That, that is all very tragic. Also, that, that storyline has a bit of a play with this movie as well, which is really cool that they do harken back to the comics well, like that. Really, at the heart of this is that whole idea, with great power comes great responsibility, even before it's set. Because we know from the trailers, that, and we and having seen the movie, who does he go to? He goes to his friend, Doctor Strange, right, to he say, does. hey, can you make everybody forget I'm Spider-Man? And like a true kid, during the, the spell casting, he keeps thinking of different scenarios and keeps blurting them out, and it keeps messing with the spell, which sets up Doctor Strange in the multiverse of madness. Yeah, so during the spell, Spider-Man Peter Parker becomes very indecisive, wants different people to remember, and that messes up the original spell. 
which brings in these villains from the other dimension. So the, the, the goblin that we see is Tobey Maguire's goblin. The Electro that we see is Andrew Garfield's Electro, so on and so forth. And it really is... If you've been watching Loki, if you've been watching WandaVision, if you've been watching What If, it really is that next step to telling the story of the multiverse, which I think is going to be the biggest thing for this phase of the MCU. Yeah, and I just want to say right off the bat, I think that that these three actors who have played Spider-Man have played it at the right times for the, the audience, starting with Tobey Maguire back in 2000 and, uh, 2002. 2002. And, you know... It's just a beautiful, rich movie that reintroduces us to the Spider-Man lore. It's the first time it's, that Spider-Man's ever been on the big screen, if, if I'm thinking correctly. I believe so. I don't. I know there was a Spider-Man movie from the 70s, 80s, but I think it was that a was TV, TV movie. Only, yeah. It was definitely a TV movie. I watched it as a kid. Yeah. I remember very little about it other than the fact that the webs they were using were ropes. Yep. It was pretty bad, I have to say. And I can't think of the actor's name off the top of my head. I, I, I want to say Peter Hammond. I know, yes. I know it was yeah. Hammond, but I'm not sure. I believe it was Peter Hammond. I believe yeah. you're correct. Now, a little, little offside to that. There was also a live-action Spider-Man show in Japan that featured a giant robot, which is insane. If you ever get a chance to look that up, do that, because it's, it's crazy. But they use the same costume as the uh, American one. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's there's probably ones from around the world. But as a child, the first time I remember seeing Spider-Man live, and I lived for it, it's what I wanted every episode. And Morgan Freeman starred in this children's programming, The Electric Company. The Electric Company, yeah. I've You know, coming over from Britain, I never had access to The Electric Company until very re- recently when it was showed up on streaming services. And it was kind of a kick seeing, one, those live-action Spider-Man segments, and two, a young Morgan Freeman. So I've actually been a Morgan Freeman fan since I was a child, if you think about it. I mean, Morgan Freeman was one of those actors that I thought just was born old. So, (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, back to to Spider-Man. So we've got all of these villains from all these different worlds, all these different universes converging in one. It's causing havoc. And the spell is continuing to cause havoc. And one of the really neat things closer to the end is that we see all these different portals to different universes. And we see all these these silhouettes and shapes. And we get to see the silhouette of Craven the Hunter. And we get to see the, the Vulture silhouette. And we get to see a different Mysterio. Like a whole bunch of different things. It's really cool seeing all that be set up. And it's going to be interesting to see how these villains, if they do appear in further MCU movies, are going to be handled. Let's talk a little bit about some of the performances in this. I mentioned at the top, Jamie Foxx gets a better outing as Electro. And let me tell you, the costuming that they did is so much better in this movie for Electro because you actually get to see that iconic comic book Electro mask But the way they do it is logical. It doesn't look campy. It doesn't look cheesy. It doesn't look ridiculous. It's really great to see. It is. It is. The thing I really dug about Jamie Foxx in this film is that he seemed legitimately intimidating in this one. He seemed like a criminal, which is what Electro is, as opposed to the Andrew Garfield film where it's like, 
he's some nerdy guy who gets powers and that's what he is. But it's interesting when you really think about the 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 home trilogy. Yeah. With Tom Holland and even going back to the Tobey Maguire, going back to the Andrew Garfield one, none of these villains are criminals. They're not really stealing anything. What happens is it's back to that that admonition. With great power comes great responsibility. These are men that didn't have power. Mm-hmm. Powers were given to them, and it corrupted them. Yeah. Some mentally and some through a complete accident like Doc Ock. Yeah. And it's interesting because with Jamie Foxx as Electro, his whole point is he doesn't want to go back to being the way he was. Yeah. And can you blame him? No. <laughs> no. And I really think that, honestly, in, in that Amazing Spider-Man 2, I really think that that particular um, part of of Jamie Foxx's character... Um, being that much of a milk toast was so campy and so cartoony and just it didn't work and it almost took you out of the film so that's why no. I, I was glad to see a much better outing for him and i agree with that and i'm not crapping on anything here i love the original 1960s spider-man series but he seemed like something that would fit like, like his original civilian identity seemed like something that would, that would be more at home in that cartoon it, it seemed like it was more at home with the way we were doing superhero movies before. If you think about um, the Tim Burton Batman, that was one of the first movies that didn't have a level of camp to it. Yeah, but if you look at Batman uh, Batman Robin, that uh, Max fits in a lot more with uh, with Pamela Isley, who becomes Poison Ivy. Right. It's almost like that that cartoony, Schumacher-ish, Adam West Batman. And that, I mean, and again, I have no problem with the Adam West Batman. I enjoyed it for what it was as a kid, but it doesn't it, it doesn't have a good look now. It's campy, it's silly, and that's not the type of stuff I want to see in my superhero films. Well, especially not in movies. Now, it was, again, it was fine for a 1960s comedy fantasy Series. Well, and, and I want to clarify. I'm not saying I don't want comedy in my movies. I like comedy in my superhero movies. I like when the comedy relieves the tension of a serious moment. That works for me. Really good example of the comedy done well in a superhero film, honestly, was Shazam. I thought that was perfect. But then there are other ones where it does come off campy or it comes off silly or sometimes crass. And we do get a lot of those comedic moments through MJ, through Ned, and through Peter Parker. Yeah. Because, in a sense, they're still kids. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the neat thing is, is you get some moments of comedy through the villains as well. One of my favorite moments is when they actually make reference to one of the internet memes about, about Osborne, about Harry Osborne. Or Norman Osborne, I should say, is where he says, you know, I'm something of a scientist myself, which one refers back to the original Spider-Man movie, but again, to that Norman Osborne meme that is constantly used. And they also had, an, uh, they also made reference to the, uh, the the Spider-Mans pointing each other meme, which just killed me. But anyway, anyway. Well, it, it, it's also that wonderful generational thing, too, where you've got... Stephen Strange, you've got Doc Ock, and they're at the mercy of these three kids that they just look at and go, oh my god, you're, 
really? I'm, I'm being defeated by these chuckleheads? <laughs> the scene where they get Doc Ock imprisoned. Oh, that was killing me because Peter has access. He has control over the tentacles and it's, and Doc Ock's losing his mind over it. And, and this Peter Parker has no idea who Dr. Octopus is. I'm so, oh, the part where he says, I'm so confused. Just, oh man. But like, and that's, that's kind of the right way to play up. They, they, they could have made this movie completely straight and I think it would have been all the worse for it because taking a character like Peter Parker and having him be confused by all these different villains that have just popped up out of the middle of nowhere and know who he is, don't recognize him, but know who he is. And not understand that there are other Peter Parkers and other Spider-Men because they haven't shown up yet. That is just pure natural comedy. I am so glad that the filmmakers went with it. Yeah, and the beauty of this comedy is that it sets up what I was talking about before, about the maturation of Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Because these are kids, they're laughing at him when he says, "What? Who, what's his name? And he says, oh, I'm Dr. Octopus or Doc Ock. And they, said, they snicker at him and they, they think that's hilarious. Yeah, and it really, it is. Because, I mean, you look at some of the, uh, the way some of these people were named. There's a lot of alliteration in their names and some of them just sound silly. They and were Stanley because, loved alliteration. Yeah, and the fact of the matter is they were born out of a more campy time in comic book. Yeah, and they alluded to that in an episode of The Big Bang Theory where they were talking about the alliteration of the different characters. Yeah, and like that's that's the thing. is like You look at the different characters. You look at Peter Parker. You've got Reed Richards. You've got Bruce Banner. All these characters have the alliteration and I think that really is what makes... A lot of the Marvel characters, one, easy to remember their names, and two, a little bit more unique, because they have that. It is a legitimate part of their character. And it's just, it's one of the reasons I really love Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby, because they were able to come up with that. Yeah, and I, I, I love the writing in this, too, because as I said just a few minutes ago, it talks generationally, where, yes, you are colleagues, yes, you are friends, but there's this generation gap and you see that with dr strange and and spider-man where he sits there and he says no uh call call me we basically saved the universe together call, call me call, steven. Call me steven and so he says okay steven's like nah, it doesn't feel quite right but i'll allow it yeah and, and he really really at that point should have called him dr strange maybe you know because that would have shown that respect and whatever and i get what they were trying to do and so because it shows that that idea of you sometimes forget that this colleague that you work with, I, it happens to me all the time when I'm doing theater, that they are a kid and they don't have that maturity going in. This is something I'm going to bring up because somebody pointed it out to me online. And I'm just like, oh, that makes sense. So Hawkeye. Hawkeye, one of the, the issues, the ongoing issues with Hawkeye is that he has a problem with Kate Bishop being so young. And I, for, from the start of Hawkeye, I was having a problem with that because he knew Spider-Man was a kid. Why would he have a problem with Kate Bishop being a kid, even though she's out of high school? And then it clicks on me. Hawkeye takes place after No Way Home. So Clint, at this point, has no clue who Spider-Man is. He has no idea that he's Peter Parker or and a kid. And remember, Clint wasn't part of the original... The, the two-part with Thanos. So he actually didn't meet Spider-Man. He never no, met him. Not until Tony's funeral. He met him. He, we, we know that they met at Tony's funeral because everybody was there. Yeah, but that doesn't then, mean they met. Yeah. 
and, and that's that's fine. But he would have been at that point. He would have been aware that Spider Man, the, the guy shooting ropes out of his wrist, was a kid. Oh, okay, that's kind of well. Weird maybe sure. maybe not. This is my point because don't forget, Peter Parker was part of the snap. Yeah, that is true. And then Hawkeye comes in the second half after the snap has happened. Peter Parker comes back. He sees a guy in a suit, maybe. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of chaos going on in that battlefield. Yeah. So, I, so for all he knows, Peter Parker's just some intern. He may not have formally met him and said, "I am, I, I'm, I'm Clint. Uh, I, I'm Peter." They may not have met. <laughs> you just called Spider-Man an intern. I love it. I'm talking about Peter Parker. You know, that was part of the disguise that they had there with that Stark yeah, Industries. He was yeah. going to be an intern. Yeah. So he, Clint actually never met him. So if he did meet him, he would have met him in the uniform, in the costume. I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. And so the other problem is that that he's having is Clint is a father. This girl is not much older than his children. Yeah, that's also true. That's also true. But going back to going back to Spider Man, with uh, one thing, another thing, another thing I absolutely adored was the chemistry between the three Spider Mans: Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, Tom Holland. Their Peters honestly seemed like a cohesive brotherly unit. And they and refer that, to themselves that way so yeah. because they were only children. Yeah. And it really is it's really sweet. It's 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 adorable. It is absolutely adorable watching the three of them together. I I I loved it. I thought it was great. And I love the humor that they pull in there where Andrew Garfield's Peter Parker is having all these self doubts and Toby Maguire's like don't tell yourself. You're amazing. You are amazing. <laughs> We're just completely referring to the, the amazing Spider-Man title. So I got an eye roller for you. Um, so I, 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 as I've told you, I spent a lot of time on Twitter watching different hashtags and whatnot. And a lot of, a lot of the conversation on Twitter has really kept me captivated about this movie. But something that someone brought up, and I'm just like, yeah, okay. Because Toby Maguire said that Andrew Garfield was amazing exactly three times. That is indication, John, that there's going to be a third amazing Spider-Man. I'm just like, oh, come on, that's reaching. That's ridiculous. Well, uh, people are jonesing for it, and we have seen with um, the Snyderverse that uh, if you whine loud enough, you'll get a four-hour piece of crap. Yeah, and let, let's let's talk about that for a second. Just for a second. Just for a second. So. On Twitter, saw the hashtag boycott WB. Now I thought, okay, why are we boycotting WB? Is it due to the fact that they kept Amber Heard on Aquaman? Like, what's going on? Nope. People are whinging about the Snyderverse yet again. I get it. I understand it. I know a lot of people really, 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 really dug the Snyder cut. But I think it's time to let it go. And let someone new do something with it. We've still got the Flash coming out. We still got the uh, the Aquaman movie coming out. We still got the Black Adam movie coming out. Those movies still exist under the idea of the Snyderverse. Let's see where they go, and go from there. Because I I think as a as a community as a fandom, I think we owe it to. I don't think Zack Snyder wants to do it anymore. So we, I think we owe that to him as fans. And I think we owe it to the current filmmakers who are who are who are now guiding the ship to see where they go with it. I would. I want to just get back to Spider Man. 
I would like to see if they were going to do a third Amazing Spider-Man movie. Right. I would like to see them pick up where they left off to get that Sinister Six that they were moving towards. I think Sony would agree with you. <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not against that as long as it's done right. The this one of the neat things is this movie really, really, really severely bucked the trend for movies that have villainitis. One of the problems a lot of superhero movies have had in the past is too many villains. This movie, yeah, there was a ton of villains. There was like five, six villains in it, but they were all used in the right amount of time, the right way. And yeah, because uh, Peter didn't have to go up against them altogether. Yeah, without the other Peters. Yeah, you know. So when Doc Ock first appears, this is great because we now have the Tom Holland. This is a great way to bring in Doctor Octopus and to bring in the Green Goblin because the Tom Holland Spider-Man has been using other villains that we haven't seen. Yeah. They've been using the Vulture, which I thought was great. And I'll tell you what I liked about Homecoming is the fact that. First of all, Michael Keaton was spectacular as the Vulture. Second, I loved seeing a plot that truly was your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, where you have a working class guy. Mm -hmm. His whole goal isn't world domination. His whole goal isn't chaos. His whole goal is not terrorism. He just wants to earn a living for his family, and the government screwed him out of that, and so he turns to running weapons by stealing a little bit of the alien technology and creating the vulture suit. And I loved it. I like I really liked it too. I like like I like the, the married I like when a superhero movie can marriage the fantastic with the realistic. And that and uh Homecoming did that exceptionally it well. It felt organic. That. It did. It did. Now neat thing about Michael Keaton, so you know Michael Keaton we know Michael Keaton's gonna be in the flash as the original Batman. We just found out this week that he is also signed on as Batman for the Batgirl movie that's coming out. That is so cool. I am so glad to see Michael Keaton going back to that because, honestly, I think he is the best Batman. I agree with that. Now, if you look at uh, Far From Home, that was... I liked it because, one, I like Jake Gyllenhaal. I think he's good. But I really like the whole aspect of... The revenge plot, like the, you know, Tony Stark did me wrong, so I want my revenge. I want that technology that he stole from me. There, there is something to that because I know there are programmers and I know there are engineers and inventors out there that get their tech stolen by corporations all the time. So for that to be the 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 main antagonist, the the um the whole reason for the main antagonist to be the bad guy in this. I thought that was good. It wasn't the way it was done wasn't necessarily realistic because we got all these different drones and all the holographic imagery and all that stuff, and I don't think we're quite there yet. But it was still a good oh, story. Oh, but we have Iron Man suits. Of course, it doesn't matter if we're there yet or not, Nick. It's fantasy. Fair enough. <laughs> and you know we're marrying we're marrying the, the fantasy with the realistic. So, but yeah, I I really like I really like that whole aspect and the fact that you had all these people from Stark Industries that we'd actually seen get reamed out or Tony had interacted with in the past on this guy's team. I thought it was a nice little touch. Well, listen, Jake Gyllenhaal side don't care when, who the actor was, honestly. Not that I have anything against Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm just saying I was just happy to see Mysterio. Well, and that's a neat thing. When they had originally planned to do Spider-Man 4 with Sam Raimi, 
Mysterio was originally supposed to be the opening villain that Spider-Man was just going to fight and then he'd go to jail in the start of the movie, right? And I think that the casting would have been absolutely spot-on perfect because it was supposed to be Bruce Campbell. <laughs> absolutely brilliant. That you know, been... I'm not sure if I can see it, actually. Well, and that's that, to, to be fair, in the Ultimate comic books, the, they actually modeled uh, Quentin Beck's face off of Bruce Campbell. That's interesting. Yeah. So, going back, with Spider-Man No Way Home, Again, you've got all you got a lot of interesting stuff going on, a lot of really, really emotional stuff going on, but then you also have absolutely amazing action set pieces, and you have action set pieces that take place. Um, I think it's the Brooklyn Bridge um, with Doc Ock, and then you have a fight out in the tracks with uh, with Sandman and Electro, and then eventually there's one at the, at the new and improved Statue of Liberty, and it's just. All of them are so well done, and I have to commend them on this because one of the big problems I have with a lot of action scenes in movies is when they use too much shaky cam, and it's dark, and you can't tell what's going on. This movie had none of that, and it was really a lot of fun to just sit back and be able to tell what's going on in these action scenes and who's fighting. And the appearance of Doc Ock, the appearance of the Green Goblin, sort of. We saw that in the trailer. Just had the audience cheering. They yeah. were waiting for it. They were salivating for it. And when you first see that first mechanical tentacle come up, you know. And uh, my God, Alfred Molina and Dafoe chew up the scenery oh like Pac-Man getting the discs. Dafoe. Well, the thing that's really amazing about Willem Dafoe is how he goes from being vulnerable and sympathetic to complete and utter madman crazy like that. The range that oh. Defoe has is amazing. It's astounding. I think of movies like uh, Shadow of the Vampire. Right? Like, it's um, just even, incredible. Even The Lighthouse. Like, Defoe's, Defoe's performances, like, make my spine tingle. He's so good. Yeah, in case you haven't realized, faithful listeners... Here, Willem Dafoe is an acting god. Yeah, we, we absolutely love Dafoe. He's brilliant, and I just, I can never pass up. Ooh, rumor time. Um, apparently, they're making another Boondock Saints movie. Why? What do you mean, why? Because the second one wasn't that good compared to the first one. Well, whatever, Willem Dafoe's probably going to be in it, so moving well, on. Well, you know what, as long as <laughs> Dafoe is in it, I'm all right for it. <laughs> So, yeah, like, um, Willem Dafoe as Green Goblin was great. Uh, they, and that's the thing, is they gave, for the villains, they gave Molina and Dafoe the most time. You had Electro, you had Jamie Foxx Electro, he didn't have as much time, but he still got to say quite a bit. Iffins and Thomas, Thomas Hayden, Hayden Church, thank you. They probably got the least amount of time. I'm assuming that, I, I know with, with Church, he was not available to be on set, so that makes sense. Not, not sure about Iffins. Well, yeah. With Reese Iffins and Thomas Hayden Church, they were mostly doing voice work. Yeah. Because the the Lizard and Sandman were in their, their CGI morphed sand... Um, lizard looks, yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's... I, again, I think they did a really good job of utilizing them. Like, keeping the Lizard in the truck for him to just 
go, oh, screw it, I'm leaving. Well, you know um, what was good about it, though, is that they actually were true to it. CGI has come a long way, even since the Andrew Garfield Amazing Spider-Man yeah. movies. They could have changed the look of the lizard, but they didn't. They mm-hmm. kept it faithful to that iteration. Well, and that's the thing, is they, they, for the most part, they kept everything very faithful. The only change that they really made in looks was Goblin and Electro. And it worked. And it made sense. It made a lot of sense. Let's talk a little bit here about your fi- who's your favorite Spidey? Who is your favorite? Oh, Tom Holland. Yeah. 100%. I think that Tom Holland really captures... See, this is, what I said, this is what I said to you before. It doesn't matter who wears the cowl as Batman. It's what they can play as Bruce Wayne. It's the same with Spider-Man. It doesn't matter who's wearing the little Spidey pajamas. It's can they be a good Peter Parker? And for me, Tom Holland is a really good Peter Parker. I agree with that. I agree with that. I love I love how Tom Holland can portray the emotions. Like that and again, that's the thing is like I I don't feel that All right. So this is something I want to get off my chest actually. So with Homecoming and Far From Home, I feel that those movies did not have the consequences in them to really get that emotional range out of Tom Holland. I really don't. Far From Home didn't really have any consequences until the very end when Mysterio lets the world know that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. Then there's consequences, but we don't get to see the outcome of those consequences until this movie. With Homecoming, it's it's the same thing. There's not really the real-world consequences. He ticks off Tony Stark. He loses his suit. He He fights Vulture. He gets his suit back. The consequences aren't there, but with this movie, you get the, the real-world consequences of your actions. But I, th- I think in some ways, though, the consequences are there in a way, because he has to grapple with ideals and subject matter that he's not really prepared for. In Homecoming, he starts dating the girl, and then he finds out, oh, crap, her dad is the vulture. And that's... I, I, I understand what you mean by that, but what I'm saying is... The, the the consequences of your actions, how they are going to permanently affect your life. What happens when he finds out the his girlfriend's dad is the is the bad guy? His dad go the, the dad and him fight, he goes to jail, the, the girlfriend moves away. That that's just a fact of life. Your girlfriends, your boyfriends will move away. Everything that happens because he Listen to Aunt May. And this is the thing. This is the thing about Spider-Man that is very true in this. Spider-Man does what he does to help people. So he makes the attempt to help the villains in this film. But, and is, it's he always, that, but is he always making the wise choice? And that's, what, that's, that's exactly That's it. what I was getting at with Homecoming is that to say there's no consequences, well, that's not true because he, he disappoints Tony Stark. He lets him down. Tony Stark reams him out, takes back the suit. There are consequences to his actions for... Being a kid and not listening. But, but... But it those, all goes to the growth. Go, but, yeah, it all, that all goes to the growth. That's fine. But by the end of the movie, he's got the suit back and everything's hunky-dory again. But this movie, it Aunt May doesn't come back to life. But if you look at the whole idea of it all... Yeah. Okay, from homecoming to far from home to no way home... We see that growth in each movie, yeah, yeah. moving to this tragedy that makes him have to grow up because he then has to make the toughest choice of all. And he does. 
And that's and that's where the real the, the real um, consequences come in because he's all the, alone. He, yeah, he is completely alone. And that's the thing. That's that's where it's going to get back to where Spider Man is at that point in his life in the comic books because in when Spider Man is in university in the comic books, not really anyone knows who he is. I think MJ knows at that point. Um, Aunt May surely didn't know, and he didn't have a lot of friends because. He had the, he had to take the responsibility because he had the power. He had his school, and he had his job, and he had Spider-Man. He had no time for a social life. His social life was essentially the Avengers, although I don't think he was in the Avengers at that point. But besides the point, at the end of this film, you've got Spider-Man. No one rem- knows who he is. No one knows it. It's not just a case of no one knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. It's Peter Parker, the memory of Peter Parker, has been completely wiped from the world. No one knows who who Peter Parker is. They still know who Spider Man is, but they don't know who Peter Parker. is. Well, they know there's a Spider Man. Yeah, they know. Well, yeah, they know that there's a Spider Man. They know that Spider Man exists and is fighting crime, but no one knows who Peter Parker is. And you know, it's really interesting too because with the multiverse, it sets up a lot of things where you can you can get the Miles Morales ideal in there. You can get get these beautiful things where you you have diversity in casting now because hey, guess what? It's a multiverse. You don't like it. Too bad. You yeah, know, yeah. There's this one over here. Yeah, and that's that's really the neat thing is that... And well, let's talk about the whole multiverse thing. I mean, I think that does leave the door open for another Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. Yeah. Because Sony can do it... And that's the neat thing is Sony can now do this completely separately from the MCU and still have Tom Holland do the MCU films. Yeah. And then they have their own Spider-Man films. As long as they don't get too heavily involved in the production... I think it would be fine. Whether they do or not, we don't know. That's speculation. But, you know, it would be... It's fun to think about. Speaking of fun to think about, I always wondered... Because I, I noticed this... To me, this, this started back um, with the X-Men. Right. You know, with, with Fox and the X-Men. What actors or interpretations do you feel like they just took some silly putty, slapped it on the comic book, took it off, shook it out, and there is that person. That actor really was the iteration of that character from the comic books. Okay. So, and I know I might take some flack from this, because I know uh, there's a lot of aspects of the characters that they removed from the movie versions, and that's fine. But, Robert Downey Jr. is Tony Stark. 100%. Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange. 100%. And that is... Only because Vincent Price is dead. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, Chris Evans as Captain America. Uh, moving away from the MCU, I'm going to have to say uh, Professor Xavier, um, Patrick Stewart, 100%. Like, Patrick Stewart was the perfect, perfect physical and performative representation of Charles Xavier. Yeah, for me, I am basically going with uh, a few different ones than you. Obviously, Hugh Jackman is Wolverine. Of course. You know, you mentioned Patrick Stewart. I agree with that. Ian McKellen as Magneto uh, as another one. Mrs. Harris, that wonderful actress who played Aunt May in the Tobey Maguire movies. She looked like Aunt May. Yeah. She sounded like Aunt May. She felt like Aunt May to me. And I really absolutely feel that Alfred Molino nailed Dr. Octopus. 
I I agree with that very, very much on the physical side. And there's one that we can both agree on, Chris Hemsworth as Thor. Absolutely, absolutely. Chris Hemsworth, like, okay, if you look at Thor in the comic books, there is no way you can get somebody who is that physically jacked in real life to play Thor, but Chris Hemsworth comes just that, that close, so close. Oh, and, and he, have you seen some of the Thor workouts that he's done to get jacked up as Thor? Actually, I haven't. Oh, man, they are tough. I, I've read I've read a few of them, but I've never seen him do any of them. Uh, like I, I know some of these guys that get jacked for their movie roles. Like I remember reading um, Gerard Butler's Regimen for 300, and all he was doing was eating steamed fish and eggs. I'm like, oh! oh you can go on the internet and you can download the su- what they call the superhero workouts, and of course the superhero that's there. Whether or not the actors actually did that, or whether they designed these to just to for fun. But man, like when you see some of the workout routines that they do to get themselves to build the muscle to get jacked up for these roles, it's intense. Now, I'm going to move away from the MCU on this topic. Hellboy. Ron Perlman as Hellboy was literally just ripped out the comic and put into a movie. And that I, I love Ron Perlman and I loved him as Hellboy. And, you know, it's really interesting, too, because you have um, Doug Jones, who played Abe Sapien. Yep. And he played him in both the Hellboy, the Physically original Hellboy both, yeah. Boy movies. And what was fascinating about that, of course, is that they got David Hyde Pierce to voice him in the first one. Yeah. And in the second one, they allowed Doug Jones to be the voice of Abe Sapien. Yep. And what was kind of nice about that is that David Hyde Pierce, they had thought about bringing him back, and David Hyde Pierce said, why would you bring me back when you've got the actor to do it right there? Yeah, and that, that's actually that's a really neat uh, kind of cross-rip with the Star Wars universe because that's something that happened with C-3PO. The original idea with C-3PO, uh, according to George Lucas, is that C-3PO was supposed to sound like a used car salesman. So Anthony Daniels was originally only supposed to be the body in the suit. And then someone, one of his producers, I can't remember who, said, what's wrong with this guy's voice? Just use him as C-3PO. And George was like, okay. And I, I love when things like that happen. It just bring it, it just brings this kind of kismet quality. Yeah, because then you've got, on the other side of that with the Star Wars universe, you have Darth Vader with David Krause being the body. and James Earl Jones yeah. being the voice, yeah. Now, <clears throat> looking at uh, the DC universe... I, okay, I mean, the, the the one, the only one that I can look at and go, absolutely, they put Silly Putty on the comic and pulled up was Christopher Reeve as, as Superman. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know I love Superman. Yeah. And I really think that that is a wonderful performance. I think that Christopher Reeve nailed the Big Blue Boy Scout very well. I... Don't feel, though, that look-wise it was the silly putty and pulling it back. However, in that same vein, I would say that's true of Margot Kidder as Lois Lane. Yeah, that's fair enough. But uh, for me, I honestly think that Henry Cavill looks more like what I would think Superman would look like. Yeah, yeah, I, I can agree with that. I just, okay. And the thing is, I, li- I really like Henry Cavill. I think that he is a good performer for Superman, but I don't, I don't dig what's been done with him so far. But that's just personal. Well, preference. no, but that we're, that's not. I know, that, I know, that, I know. We're getting I know. into the scripts at that point, yeah. and we know that the scripts are not great. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. Yeah, I would like to see Henry Cavill have a better outing as Superman. I would like to see 
uh, a better Batfleck because I, I just yeah. don't think that Ben Affleck has been given enough of the gravitas moments to do that. I and that's that's kind of the thing. I really dig Ben Affleck as Batman as this older, more mature, much more the, the idea of this older, more mature seasoned Batman. Yeah, and it gets back to that point that Ben Affleck to me can play both Batman and Bruce Wayne. Absolutely. And one of the reasons uh, I'm excited for the Batman coming out. I do want to see it. But I'm getting really really sick of origin stories. For characters I've seen a billion times, yeah, and that's the only thing because I know, and I know, I know it's not necessarily going to be the origin story, but the death of the parents is going to come up again. I just, want, I would love to see a movie with Ben Affleck being. We're just dropped into this world of Gotham City where Batman has been active for what twenty years, maybe, and he's just going out doing his thing, and he's he's. In a story with the Scarecrow. He's in a story with Solomon Grundy. He's in a story with the Riddler. Whatever. What have you. Just show me yeah, that. And we saw a little bit of that in uh, Batman versus Superman. Not a great film. But there's that great moment where he goes and he takes out all those thugs in that stealthy way. You know, with the... He's he's hidden. He's dark. And he, he can see through the cowl, the, the night vision. And yeah. just lays waste to them and there's no backstory at all until we get to the very silly Martha why'd you say that name <laughs> Martha <laughs> oh that was just I wanted that movie to be so better than it was we all wanted it to be better than it yeah, was and really the, the best thing about it was Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman and yeah. then it still took her own independent movie for us to see the Wonder Woman armor that we're all accustomed to I'm not sure what that that brown copper thing was that she was wearing. Zack Snyder likes things to be dark and gritty. So good for him. That and there, there's another thing is, uh, or there's another person that they put the silly putty on. And they pulled out of the comic book was Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman. Fantastic in choice. the in the Wonder Woman standalone movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, any others that you can think of? I'm trying to think. I mean, now we're we're sort of getting into. Maybe just aesthetics, not so much performance. Um, Halle Berry as Storm, um, James Marsden as Cyclops, they look the part. They do look the part. I thought you were going to say uh, Halle Berry as Catwoman. I was going to hit you. But the- <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we love Halle Berry, but could we just forget that that ever existed? Hey, she had the, she had the intestinal fortitude to show up and accept her Razzie, so whatever. Good on her. And you know what? I, I think that that's great that she did that. I do too. It shows that she understands. She's got, uh, she can laugh at herself. Aaron Eckhart as Harvey Dent. Really? 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 No. I mean, for looks, I think he looks like. Yeah. Um, His performance was great. Don't get me wrong. His performance was great. But, yeah. Now, what about Heath Ledger as the Joker? Well, okay. Prior to, I'd say no, but when after the movie came out and they started, you know, building the look of the Joker around Heath Ledger at the time, then yeah, obviously. Um, great performance. Loved him as the Joker. Absolutely loved him as the Joker. He was amazing. But, and this is, this is a what-if scenario, is if they had done Willem Dafoe as the Joker, then I would say absolutely. Oh, you know, we have seen that on the internet where people have taken... Um, the magic of special effects and made 
Dafoe. Dafoe. Look like the Joker. It, and it's not too late, Hollywood. Oh. It is not too late. Bring him into the Batfleck world. Yep. And I I think he would be in the if he played the Joker, I think he would be in the running for the best Joker period. And it would be down to him. Oh, Jesus. They're all with the exception of Jared Leto, they're all so good. I mean, I shouldn't I shouldn't crap on Jared Leto for that. No, don't that crap on Jared Leto for that, because my understanding is that there's a, a there's that, a lot of it that's on the cutting room floor. Yeah. Um but And you know, I love his line, and I think he delivered it well. Oh, I'm not gonna kill you. I'm just gonna hurt you real bad. Yeah. I I felt like there I felt like I feel like there's a competent, really good joker. In Jared Leto, and we saw a little bit more of it at the end of the Snyder Cut. Yeah, but if I were to say that Jared Leto made a mistake as the Joker, I would say that it was in the laugh. Oh yeah, the eh, eh, laugh. It sounded like somebody was like stepping on his toes. Well, that laugh to me would have served better as somebody's interpretation of the Penguin. Right, I agree with that completely. Um, but. I can only, okay, I can only go off of what I've seen. Now, like I said, I think there's a competent Joker performance in Jared Leto. We just didn't get to see it. And that's unfortunate. So it, it does come down to, I think if, if Willem Dafoe played him, it would come down to who's the best Joker. Jack Nicholson, Heath Ledger, Willem Dafoe, and I gotta say it because I think I still think he's the best performance out there, even though he hasn't played him physically. Mark Hamill. What about Walking Phoenix, though? Oh, you know, and that's that's a weird thing. Like, it's a standalone film. It is a standalone film, and I really liked Joaquin Phoenix's performance. And I might take slack for this. And and don't get me wrong, I really liked the movie, but it wasn't a Batman movie. It wasn't a Joker movie. It felt like a remake of something like Falling Down or. Taxi Driver. It, but it, it was a Joker origin story set outside of the DCU, set outside here, and it was a social commentary, and for me, it worked 100%. It, it very much was the Joker sort of rising up and people looking at the idea of the poor rising up against the wealthy and their mistreatment, the treatment of people who are mentally ill, the failings of the social system, and it creating a monster, if you will. Yeah. And, of course, the escalation of all this stuff as well as it creates the monster. Well, we see Bruce, young Bruce and his parents, like we see his parents get gunned down in the film. So that creates the Batman. Again, I don't have, I like this movie a lot. I really do. But I don't look at Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker Joker. I, 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 I think I get what you mean. Yeah. You, don't, you don't sort of I, look I, at him as... It's not really a comic book movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, don't, I can't compare him to Heath Ledger, to Jack Nicholson, to Mark Hamill, because it's not the same thing. If I were going to make comparisons, it would be to Michael Douglas in Falling Down. It would be to Taxi Driver with De Niro. Yeah, and you know, it's really interesting that De Niro's in this film because it harkens back to Taxi Driver, but it also harkens back to another dark movie of his, uh, The King of Comedy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Really? Oh, absolutely. Where the, It's the idea of this guy being mentally unstable, and yeah, I haven't seen it in years, starred uh, Jerry Lewis along with him. So it's a really, really interesting film to uh, check out if you can ever get a hold of it. 
I'll have to look that up because I haven't seen it. Yeah. I didn't even, I've never even heard of it. But yeah, I mean, it gets to those darker themes, you know, and, and how media influences everybody. The only reason that uh, he has them on the show because of the video of him tanking at the comedy club. Yeah, and that's really interesting because you have, he, Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, uh, Arthur Fleck, he thinks that he is being brought on there. Initially, he thinks he's being brought on there because they think he's a good comedian, then they bring him on there to make fun of him. And that... The movie is about so much. It's about the disappointment that we we go through in life, because this guy is... This guy's put through the ringer. Like, no wonder he goes absolutely mad at the end, because you've got his mom telling him that his dad is the, the richest, most powerful man in Gotham City. Because she's mentally ill, too. Yeah. Now... We, that's the thing, we don't really find out either way. We can make our own assumptions from this film, and that's the thing, we make a, you can make a lot of assumptions from this film. How much of this is in Arthur Fleck's head to begin with? Well, but, yeah, and we get that moment, too, with the neighbor, where none of that was happening. None of it was happening. It all happened in his head. Like, did any of it actually happen? And that, that really... Then, I think they met on the elevator, but after that... Well, not just that, but any of the movie. And that's that's where it really does coincide with the comic books. Because in the comic books, you have the Joker, especially in the killing joke, where he says, this is how I remember my life today. Yeah, and, and when movies can do that, it's brilliant. I remember watching A Beautiful Mind, the biopic. Yeah. And I sat there and I said to uh, my friends who had seen it with me at the time, I said, so when does this schizophrenia start? And then there's that switch and then we realized, oh my God, it's been there all along. We've been watching it all along. That is what the Joker felt like. It felt like a biopic. Yeah. It really did. So while we're on this topic of who embodied the character the most, we do have a number one pick. But before we get to that number one pick that both Nick and I agree on, Nick, some honorable mentions. Well, very easily, Blade, Wesley Snipes, looks and feels like the character. Absolutely warped. Yeah, I would say Vincent D'Onofrio as the Kingpin. Absolutely. Oh, he is frightening as the Kingpin, especially, especially in Daredevil. He is so scary, and he really really embodied that scary aspect of the, the the killer ruthlessness of Wilson Fisk was right there with Wilson with uh, Vincent yeah. Alfred. And speaking of Daredevil, I, I did enjoy the performance of Michael Clark Duncan because at that time he was a very big man and he really felt very organic to play the Kingpin in the Daredevil movie. Well and that's the thing is I can't think of another actor who could have played the kingpin in that movie. I mean, did he look like him? Nah. Well, that's the thing. is I don't think they could have had another actor play him at that time no, period no. without it looking incredibly silly. Yeah, and I, I'll, I'll say, too, because Michael Clark Duncan's been gone from us from a number of years, and I do miss his presence in oh, Hollywood. So, our number one pick for an actor or actress that looks sounds and embodies the character as if they just put silly putty on the comic page pulled it off shook it out is jk simmons as j jonah jameson i want pictures of spider-man he <laughs> was fantastic he doesn't let loose from that it's easy to see why he won an oscar um, for the, the the sadistic music instructor now here's the really neat thing so they brought him back 
for Far From Home as as J. Jonah Jameson. Brilliant choice. Brilliant choice. But here's the really, really, really cool thing. He has actually played J. Jonah Jameson in three different Spider-Man properties. Obviously, the original Tobey Maguire movies. Yeah. The, the, new, the new Tom Holland movies. And also one of the cartoons. They had J.K. Simmons re- return to play J. Jonah Jameson. Because at this point... J.K. Simmons is J. Jonah Jameson, not personally, of course. But no, I mean, but he he embodies that character. Like I remember watching the '90s cartoon, and they had Ed Asner playing J. Jonah Jameson. And when I was a kid, I thought that was the perfect embodiment of J. Jonah Jameson. But then seeing J.K. Simmons in Spider-Man, I'm like, this guy's awesome. Oh, he owned it. He he, oh my god. So good, and I can. I'm just looking at that performance. Who else would you have play him after that? Why would they not bring him back for Far From Home? Well, faithful listeners, we are so glad that you joined us for this conversation about comic books, Spider Man, Batman, the whole DC MCU. <laughs> We're so grateful that you do tune into Area Fifty One and a Half. Nick, quick reminder: How can our faithful listeners get a hold of us? Well, they can get a hold of us on Twitter, the Area Fifty One H as well as Instagram and on Twitch. And faithful listeners, do not forget to rate us on Spotify, like us, follow us, all of that lovely stuff. It really helps us. Thank you so much for listening. This is John Allen and Nick Snyder, Snyderman 501, signing off from Area 51 and a Half. What is that? I don't know. That's one of the alarms. Oh, Oh my my God. God. They've escaped.